So as you know, we teach through the Word of God, and now we have another exciting subject. Yes, divorce. <laughs> yeah, my D-I-V-O-R-C-E became final today. Tammy Wynette, you know, Tammy Wynette, yes. Yeah, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. But anyway, we're going to be talking about this and really what the biblical view is. Jesus is going to give us his view of adultery or actually sexual immorality. But there are a couple other things that Scripture talks about for divorce. So we're going to talk about that today and what God really means by this and what he means by marriage and how important this is, this institution called marriage. So if you would, stand for the reading of the Word of God. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 15. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, such is the case of the man and his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this, but only those to whom it has been given. For, these are, for there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there were eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He was able to accept it, let him accept it. Then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from them. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you for your word. Open our eyes to the truth of it now. Holy Spirit, teach us. Each one of us are here to hear from you, our God. Penetrate the veneer of our, of our hearts and just push into us, God, the things that you want us to know. Help us, Lord to draw near to you and to be obedient to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, I also want to mention this, that Abraham has been visiting us for the past few months, and he's going to be leaving his assignment at post and moving back to Florida, waiting his next assignment. So if you would, say goodbye to Abraham at some point. So Abraham, thank you for coming here and being part of this body for a few months. Thank you. Thank you. Now, last week, we talked about uh, forgiveness. Remember, forgiveness means to just dismiss it, put it away. You're not going to be tortured anymore by the things that have tormented you for so many years. You're going to have a spirit of forgiveness as Christians. It is actually a requisite to be a Christian. Jesus says very specifically that if we don't forgive, he will not forgive us. And we'll more on that in just a second. Peter asked the question, how often shall I forgive my brother who has sinned against me? And he said seven times, Peter says seven times, he thought it was magnanimous. He thought it was just terrific, seven times. Remember, rabbinical tradition taught three times. And then Jesus' response was right straight to Peter. Oh, no, Peter, 70 times seven, 490 times. And that took us back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, talking about the 70 weeks prophecy. When, they were, when the 70 weeks prophecy had it been fulfilled, there'd be 490 years until the kingdom would have come. So we are being taught that we are to give forgiveness until the kingdom comes. Now, in, we're post-Christian in America today. But in my years, in the 1950s and the 1960s growing up, there was a, a, a kind of a, a saying that I'm going to knock you to kingdom come. <laughs> or I don't want to wait until kingdom comes. And people actually had an idea what kingdom comes means. Most people don't today, so we don't use that saying very often today. But it was popular then. So Jesus is saying that he wants us to forgive until we are no longer here. That is the message. Matthew 6.14 is the scripture that he made clear 
how he feels about this. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. It is a requisite to give forgiveness. Now, we talked about the impossibility in many situations to do this. Some things are so egregious, you know, rapes, murders, just the abuse that happens to humanity, that you cannot naturally just do this. It has to be something given to you by God. And Corey Ten Boom was our example. Remember, she was forgiven. She was asked to give forgiveness to the guard who actually tortured Betsy and her while she was in Ravensbrook Prison. And she said when she finally was asked to give forgiveness, the guard speaks to her and says, I am a Christian, Corey, Fraulein. I am a Christian, Fraulein. Would you forgive me for what I have done? And Corey says, no, I can't. In her spirit, she's saying, no, I can't do this. This is impossible. But she knew that God expected her to do this. So as she reached out her hand to shake hands with this guy, she felt God's power just flow right through her, and she was able to give forgiveness, and then she was released from the torturers. Remember, if you harbor forgiveness, you'll be the one that suffers the torture. So it's very important to remember to forgive, and we forgive how long? Until kingdom comes, till it's all over. Now, when you forgive, you are set free. And Corey had a couple pictures, or a couple things in pictures that I put up last time. I just want to review those. Number one, she said this, forgiveness is the key that unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hatred. What a wonderful word. The next one will come up. Forgiveness is setting the prisoner free only to find out that the prisoner was me. And folks, if you do not forgive, you'll not be set free. So when you forgive, this is what happens to you. The next picture, like a little dove flying away, free at last, free at last. I am no longer under the heavy weight of unforgiveness. And so that's what we went through last week. This week, we're going to be talking about divorce. So just a little introduction to this. Divorce comes from the word epipolo, and it means to let go, dismiss, or depart. And there's unending views on divorce in humans. Some people believe that you can never get divorced. Other people believe you can get divorced for anything. I'm just not happy. I'm just not happy. It's time to move on, that sort of thing. Well, Jesus had a view that we're going to be going through. Many of them, when these Pharisees asked the question, they're referring back to Deuteronomy 24.1. And they say this, that what Moses, how Moses instructed the nation on divorce. She finds, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, then she can be put away, put away. Again, in Jesus' days, there were two, two, two schools of thought. One was Shammai, Rabbi Shammai, very popular guy in Jesus' time. He was the conservative. He believed it was only for adultery. And then there was Rabbi Halil. Rabbi Halil was the liberal, that you can get a divorce for anything. And remember, it was a patriarchal society. The men ruled the society. So if they just felt like they were sick of their wife, they could make up anything and just dispose of her. And Halil had a huge following, probably more than Shammai, because the men want their way. That's just what happens. But remember this, throughout history, God's rules on divorce, now remember this, are meant to protect women, protect the marriage covenant, but mostly women. Women were abused. Now, this is really throughout history. This has happened, but particularly in the time of Jesus, and we know this happens today. Women were abused, used, discarded, neglected, and violated. They were nothing but property for men and considered of less value, listen to this, than animals, land, or things and divorce was rampant at the time of Jesus, and it's rampant today. Divorce requires a certificate then and a certificate now of divorce. Why is that? Because marriage is a public event where you come together at, before witnesses. So you're, you're before witnesses, a public event to, to bring the marriage together, and it's a public event to dissolve the marriage so that the whole culture knows what's going on. So the certificate of divorce was at Jesus' time and even as till today. Every word commentary has this to say on this. A certificate of divorce was a legal contract necessitated by man's refusal to obey God's will. And it's for the whole population to know that this marriage covenant has been dissolved, sadly so. Sadly so. 
With this introduction, we're going to start our teaching. Now, verse 1 and 2, Jesus is simply leaving Galilee and on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. We're about six months before the cross. That's the picture here. So in verse 1 and 2, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings about forgiveness and the, unfor- and, and, and the unbelieving brother and that sort of thing that we went through in the past few weeks, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and great multitudes followed him there and he healed them there. Now, again, it's time for Jesus to start his ministry, make his way to Jerusalem. It's a few months prior to the cross. Now, what is happening is that the Pharisees are continuing to ramp up, ramp up, ramp up pressure. And Jesus knows it's time. It was a specific time for him to move down and enter the time when he's going to go to the cross. And there's a map here that will actually show us he's in Galilee. He makes the trek down. And he ends up in this area called Perea. Now, Perea was ruled by Herod Antipas. Now, you may remember him as the guy that chopped off John the Baptist's head. So this is a Gentile area. He makes his way here. He heals some people. But at this place where he heals, he's confronted by the Pharisees. Wherever the people are hearing Jesus, you have the counter-movement of the Pharisees. Wherever the word of God is given, you have the counter-movement of Satan all the time. So remember that there's always going to be the pressure from the, from the kingdom of darkness to try to help you not see the light. And that is what is happening here. So multitudes follow them. Jesus heals them. So the Pharisees set a trap in verse 3. And they ask him this question that they know is going to stir up the multitude. Because half of them are going to like what he says, and half of them are not going to like what he says. And the Pharisees also came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, he's siding with the Hillel group, which is the most popular. But there is the Shammai group in there that believes, no, it's just for adultery. So these guys are specifically trying to stir up the pot, stir up the multitudes, to turn them away from Jesus. So the purpose of the question was to discredit Jesus and turn the people against them. Now, in typical Jesus fashion, he does not answer their question directly. And what he does, he talks about marriage and the permanence of marriage in verses 4 through 6. And he answered and said to them, have you not read? Now, stop right there. These are Pharisees. These are guys that are supposed to be experts in the Old Testament, particularly in Torah, which are the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They should have known. He held them responsible for knowing what the word said. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, super glued to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Not two individuals in the relationship, but one flesh moving forward together. So then there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, that is an important concept. So he doesn't answer their question. He doesn't get into the debate with Shammai and Hillel. He goes right to the root of the problem. He goes right back to Genesis. So in typical Jesus fashion, he does not answer the question. He takes these Torah experts back to Genesis. And he says in Genesis 1.27, He who made them at the beginning, the very beginning, God made them male and female. In Genesis 2.24, he says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, I want to take a pause here and think about what Jesus said, particularly in verse 127. God made two genders, male and female. Can anybody say, Amen to that. Yes, men and women, that's it. Okay, that's the genders. That's the genders. There's a difference between a man and a woman. You are either born a man or you are born a woman. That's simple. Now, what has happened in our nation? We have twisted this. We have gone along with all kinds of perversions that counter what God is saying here. We can never buy into that. 
Remember in Deuteronomy 28, 28, I've mentioned this many times, the nation of Israel, when it left the true God, God says, this will, this will be what happens to you. When a nation of America has left the true God, this, I believe, is happening to them. I will strike you, God says, with madness, confusion, and blindness of heart. And when you start looking as men being women and women being men, folks, that's madness, that's blindness, that's confusion of heart. You are under the judgment of God when that happens. Now, think about what's entered our land. In the 1990s, our vocabulary started to change. It was only then that we started to hear the words cisgender, binary, non-binary, agender, bigender, all this gender, gender, gender stuff instead of boy, girl, man, woman. Very simple. Very simple with God. And on it goes. Now, this... This thinking that has permeated our culture has been supported by all these things that undergird the culture. What do I mean? Education, arts, media, government, big business, and even sports is entered into this domain. And this crazy thinking has come into churches. You know, Sarah Huckabee had it right. There's a big difference between normal and crazy. And crazy has come into our land. Crazy has come in. You throw out God, enter madness, blindness, and confusion of hearts. Now, for the man and the woman, the two must depart from their families. So departure is a big thing. There must be a departure from the parents. A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two become one flesh and establish their home. Now, ladies, I'm basically talking to you, but this has to do to men too. But whenever you're looking for a spouse, somebody that you're going to be joined to forever, the two shall become one. You want to make sure that that person is a Christian that has a worldview like your worldview to not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Scripture is very specific on this. There's no room for, for, for freelancing on this. Very specific. So, Women look for a man that is a Christian. Man look for a woman that is a Christian. Secondly, a man, now hear this. You are not ready to get married, young men, unless you can support your wife. That means you have a J-O-B. And that's not Job. That is a job. And I'm not talking about $3 an hour job. You have to be able to support your wife, have a job. And the third thing is, is the man is not ready until he has a home of some sort prepared for his bride. Okay, is that clear? Three things. If you take anything away from this talk, three things. That would save so many problems. <laughs> Secondly, there's dependency. The two must depend on one another. Look, at you're leaving your father and mother. You're forming your own family, your own home. You depend on one another. Can the parents help? Yes. Are the parents supposed to carry the load? No. You must do this together as one facing the world. But to be joined to his wife. The man is to be joined to his wife and two shall become one flesh. You are one dealing with the struggles of life. Together as a unit, as one going forward. And then there's a declaration that's not in your notes. Should have put it there, but I didn't. But the declaration is this. For the husband and the wife together building their lives on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, you declare to your friends, your world, whatever you come in contact, as for me and my house, you know it, we will serve the Lord. This is a house that serves the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a declaration. Men, you are the priest of your home. Men, your home will rise and fall on your leadership. Your leadership, very important. Now, I have a picture here of Ephesians 5.22 and, and, and Ephesians 5.25 through 26. The first one's going to be the man's responsibility. Now, when I say this, it's going to come up on the screen, the man's responsibility. Hear this loud and clear. This is God speaking to the man about his responsibility, not God speaking to the wife, saying to the man, you should love me like Jesus loves the church. Conversely, 
and submission because so many men have in toxic relationships have used this inappropriately to say, woman, you should submit to me. That is never a word that should come out of a man's mouth. That is from God to the woman, and that's her responsibility before God. Now, everybody have that straight. That's an important concept. So, number one, husbands. Excuse me. Wives. Okay, wives. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own through their husbands and everything. Now, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, this is a huge, a huge, a huge responsibility. You are to nurture your wife, cherish your wife. You are to sacrifice for your wife. This is sacrificial love like Jesus did for us. Gave himself up, gave himself up, his desires, his will for her to make her holy, cleansing her by all, washing of water with through the word, with the word of God. You are to be the priest of your home, to bathe that home in the word of God, to encourage that home in the word of God. That is your responsibility. Now, as I'm running out of breath, hear this. I want to go to the next one, and it's going to, be, it's going to get more exciting from here. <laughs> the marriage is to be durable. Durable. Durability. The marriage covenant is, a dur is durable until death. What God has joined together, let no man separate or put us under. Listen, when you made your covenantal agreement to be married, most of you made your covenantal agreement before God, because that's who the covenant is made with. One another, husbands and wife together, you are making a promise to one another that I'll be faithful to you. And thirdly, you're making that covenantal agreement before the witnesses that are before you. Three entities, God mean the main one. You're, ma you're married under a covenant. You promise to God that I will stay in this relationship. That's what it is. Now, I want to show you this triangle. Most of you have seen this before. But I think this is like really important. So husbands, that starts with you. The stronger the relationship the husband has with the Lord the more he is able to give his bride, watch this, love, service, compassion, gentleness, faithfulness. Now, what you don't see in here is manipulation, degrading, exploiting, that sort of thing. This is his responsibility. Now, the wife, the stronger the relationship the wife has with the Lord, the more she is able to give her husband respect, honor, service, authority, to lead the family is on to the Lord. Now hear this loud and clear. Husbands, if you do this, you help your wife submit and do this. Wives, if you do this, you help your husband love you as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And notice, as you grow closer to God, you will grow closer to one another. Important, important concept. If you have this happen, if you have, let's say, the husband's growing and the wife isn't, or vice versa, the distance stays the same. If neither one of you are growing, there is always going to be a distance. It cannot be the relationship that God wanted. So both of you submitting to God, drawing closer to God, will draw closer to one another. Then you have a chance for your marriage to survive, because I'm telling you that you have everything in this world pulling at you to separate that marriage relationship. Everything is trying to tear it apart. So, just one other anecdotal note for completeness. God established marriage. There is no such thing as a homosexual marriage. That is not a marriage. That is not what God has ordained. So please remember that. There is no such thing. And verses, I don't care if a popular singer says it is so. We'll leave it at that. Now, Jesus is going to talk about divorce in verse 7 through 9. Watch what he says. They said to him, Jesus, they said to Jesus, Why then did Moses command you, command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? 
Now, notice what Jesus says. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted, not commanded, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, this was not God's way. It wasn't so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now, Jesus is not mincing words here. He's not mincing words. So, again, what Moses taught, no way commands to get a divorce. It's a permission. Jesus makes it clear divorce was permitted because of the hardness of your hearts, the perverseness of your hearts, the stubbornness of your hearts. Now, what you want to know is that there is an exception clause to no divorce, and that is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Let me define this to you for the umpteenth time. Sexual immorality is any sexual act outside the marriage covenant. So, living together, adultery, bestiality, homosexuality, any other ality that you can think of that is not under the marriage covenant is against the precepts of God. It is not debatable. It is what God says. It is what God says. Now, reasons for divorce in Scripture. There are three of them. Number one, no one can debate this one, death. Death of a spouse ends the marriage covenant. 1 Corinthians 7.39 and Romans 7.2. This is not in, it is in your notes. I did put it there. Okay. Sexual immorality, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Jesus spoke about this twice, so it's an important subject to him. And thirdly is desertion of the unbelieving spouse, 1 Corinthians 7.15. Now, hear this loud and clear. We are not to go beyond what is written, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. We have to be true to Scripture. So, what is not addressed? What is not addressed? Abuse, emotional or physical. Drug or alcohol abuse. Don't check out with me yet, please. Crimes, financial mismanagement, gambling addictions, all the stuff, all the crud, all the nastiness that comes into relationships that drives people apart. That is not really mentioned in Scripture. Many consider a pattern of this behavior that I've just mentioned demonstrates that the person has abandoned or deserted the marriage covenant. And repeated abusive behavior, many believed a, a legitimate reason to separate. Okay? Now, take a pause. Because people can run with this, and they can call anything abusive, like Halil did. She burned the toast. She didn't make my eggs right. I want them over easy. She keeps messing that up. So I need to get rid of her. So that's not abuse, folks. When I'm talking about abuse, I'm talking about just violent, physical, emotional, spiritual abuse that just cuts to the core of a human being. So be very careful with this. Now, with this stated... Now, hear this. Now, this, this is a me statement, okay? And, and, and I feel somewhat uneasy with this, but I feel like I have to say it. With this stated, it is unlikely that God would expect anyone to live in continual, habitual, physical, spiritual, emotional abuse. It is unlikely because God is always trying to protect the weakest in the group, and that would be the woman in this situation who's being exploited mostly by men. It can happen the other way, particularly today, as roles have changed so much. So it's important to this, and I would urge you, if you're living in those situations, get out. Get out. Separate, but take a pause. Do not jump to divorce, even in the most awful of situations. Separate first. Separate first. Hopefully, Repentance and restoration is the goal of restoring that relationship. Do not rush to divorce. Remember, God is an expert. He is an expert at reconciling and bringing people back together. He is. The marriage covenant is sacred, and God can heal and restore any marriage if the couple would yield to God's way. The couple must yield. It must be both, not just one. 
Both must yield to God's way. Many impossible situations have been restored to the glory of God. Now, the disciples, what's going, what, what do these guys do? Well, they're going to miss the point. Verse 10 through 12. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, and then they make a statement. They don't even ask a question. It is better not to marry. They're telling Jesus, what they, it is better not to marry. Now, again, they missed the point. The disciples are saying, Jesus' parameters are so narrow, it is so difficult to stay in the marriage relationship that it would be better not to marry than to marry. Hear this loud and clear. Jesus is not saying that celibacy is better than marriage. He is not saying that. And I also want to take a little pause here before I go on any farther. If you've gotten divorced, if you've gotten divorced for non-biblical reasons, that is not the unforgivable sin. That can be repented of and forgiven, and you can move forward. So please remember that. Don't look at yourself as never being able to move past this. You can move past this. Now, what about this, this eunuch thing that he's talking about? Well, eunuch, it means you're castrated. The male uh, genital parts are, are cut off, okay? Cut off, so he, they cannot have any more sex. He talks about natural causes, unnatural causes, and those who choose volitionally to just function as a, as, as a eunuch, who made themselves eunuchs functionally for the kingdom of heaven's sake, Jesus said. Now, an example of this may be somebody like John the Baptist, functionally just says, okay, I'm going to dedicate myself to God, not going to get involved with women. Jesus did this. Some of the disciples, I think, did this. So it's very common, but was common at the time of Jesus. A life of singleness means a life of celibacy, meaning no sex. This is not for the masses. This is a specific calling by God to the person, and he enables them to be able to carry this out. Most humans can't do this. It's a special calling. To, and what the calling is to do this, to fully dedicate their lives to the service of God. Jesus said, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Now, verse 13 through 15. If this was a Sunday school class, we'd be having a lot of discussion right now, wouldn't we? <laughs> a lot of discussion. Yes, we would. Now, Jesus is going to address the little children, and this is the second time, Matthew 18, the disciples are responding the very similar way. 13 through 15. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from them. Now, is it any coincidence that at this point in Jesus' teaching that he's talking about marriage and divorce, that he doesn't bring children into it. Bring the children unto me. Marriage produces children. And I would encourage you, dad and mom, bring your kids to Jesus. Bring your kids to Jesus. Luke 18, 15 has a little bit more, helps us with this a little bit. They brought the infants to him that he might touch them. The they is written in the masculine. And in this case, it was the men who were actually doing this. In most cultures, particularly in America today, it's generally the women that are bringing their kids to Jesus. And it should be the men. So hip, hip, hooray, if you're a man and you're bringing people, your children to Jesus. And again, this, these, are, these are baby, little, little children. Little, it's, actually, the word is pation, so they're uh, toddlers into, into getting into the teen years. And it, what it's, Jesus is actually saying is, allow the children to come to me. Allow the innocent ones to come to me. People who come to Christ, this will come on the, on the screen now, must come to him as a child, as little children. No position, no status as a child. Children in that world had no position, no status. That's how you must come. Humbly, not prideful. No one ever comes to Jesus jumping up and saying, look how wonderful I am, Jesus. You can't help but just take me in and just, just, just love all over me. Well, he's going to love you, but that's the wrong attitude. You come to Jesus humbly. Remember this. 
God is the initiator in salvation. He is the one that draws. He is the one that convicts. He is the one that initiates all relationships. No one comes. Remember this in, in Romans chapter 3. No one seeks after God. No one. No one. There's none righteous, no, not one. And notice the tenderness of Jesus. He's teaching his disciples something. Be tender. He laid his hands on them as he departed. Now, you remember this song, remember? Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Everybody's beautiful. That's, that's not how it goes. <laughs> that's not how it goes. Anyway, this is, this, is, this is, Jesus loves children. He loves people. He wants people to come to him. He wants people to be part of his family. But remember, you are not a child of God until you believe in God. It isn't all the people of the world are children of God. No, they are not. You become a child of God when you believe and receive the gift of salvation. Important concept. Now, closing thoughts. American Christianity is changing unequivocally. You realize that very much post-Christian America. I want to talk to you about cohabitation before marriage, people living together before marriage, something condemned by God, but embraced by the culture. The first slide will show you that 41% of practicing Christians, interesting, think it's a good idea to cohabitate. Try it out before we do it. Now, of course, no faith, it's 88%. The next slide will break it down a little bit more. 6% of evangelicals. Now, I interpret this to mean those who truly believe what the Bible says. Jesus said it. The epistles teach us it. And this is what we practice. He says, don't do it. I'm not going to do it. 35% of born again. A lot of people say they're born again, but do not follow the precepts of Jesus. And then practicing Christians, they go to church, they go through the motions, 41%, and again, no faith at 88%. Now, as we go forward here, I want you to hear something loud and clear. Simply knowing someone that has divorced increases your chances of divorce. Simply knowing someone. Divorce is contagious. Once validated in one's mind, it becomes a viable option for any reason, I'm just not happy. Well, I can tell you what. I've been married for 52 years, and there's plenty of times during that time frame that I was just not happy, and so was my bride. We're just not happy with one another. You know what? You slug it out. You go through, not, not physically, you, 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 you work through the issues. You work through the issues together. That's what you are to do. You don't just throw it up in the air and give up. So, divorce and degrees of separation. Now, this next slide is an important one. 75%, this is interesting. If you come in contact, if in your family, a family member, a friend or a family member in close proximity to you, if they believe in divorce, it increases the likelihood that you will get divorced because they have validated your feelings. Remember, you can't go on your feelings. Do not trust your feelings. Please, do not trust your feelings. They trust their feelings, and 75%, if it's more distant, it goes down to 33%. Now, with that stated, with that stated, did you know the statistics are even worse for people that marry a second and third time? I didn't, this won't be on the screen. 67% of second marriages and 74% of third marriages end in divorce. So it doesn't get better and better with the subsequent one. You have with the, with the next one. You have to follow the precepts of God and I think that that helps your marriage gives it survivability. Gives it survivability. So follow the Jesus way. G divorce is a giant problem in our nation today and the church is not exempt. Many people quote this. 50% of marriages end in divorce, which is about right. And they also say that in the church, it's about 50%. Now, I got this information from Got Questions, who then excerpted their information from Barna. 
So George Barna and this woman named Shantai Feldhan examined the data pertaining to divorce rate among Christians, and they found that the word Christian, Christian in the high numbers, is anyone who just takes on the name. So like if you're born in America, you're a Christian. It doesn't mean you're a Christian. A Christian is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Commit to put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That is a Christian. Under the broad classification, the divorce rate is about the same. However, this will come up on the screen, the next slide. Those who are active in their church, those who are sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ, the divorce rate was 27 to 50% lower than the non-churched. That's amazing. Jesus does make a difference. Nominal Christians, those who take on the name of Christianity but really don't get involved with Christianity, they just have their little pass in their pocket just in case it's all true. And I, I said, I'm a Christian, so I get into heaven. Oh, be careful. Be careful. Those folks are 20% more likely than the general population to get divorced. So when people keep God at the center of their lives, marriage rates go down. Excuse me, divorce rates go down. Marriages stay solid. The family, now this is another slide that's going to, another thing that's going to come up on the screen. And I think you'll agree with this. The family is under attack in our world today. Three entities, remember, the world system we're living in, your flesh nature that wants its way, and the devil stirring it all up. Those three entities. Now, I've excerpted these from several articles on marriage. The world thinks this way. They insist that sexual license has no consequences. That's how the world thinks. That divorce is liberating. That children are better off without both their biological parents. That a child can be raised by a man and his homosexual lover just as well. That marriage is oppressive unless it's between two people of the same sex and then it's just celebrated like mad. That biological sex isn't real. That gender is whatever a person thinks in their mind. And that anyone who won't play along is a hateful bigot. And many other bizarre fantasies, end quote. We are being told that we should enthusiastically dismantle the traditional family. That the traditional family, the nuclear family as you know it, is passe. It's passe. No, it is not. The entire foundation of civilization is based upon what God calls family. The stronger the society, families, the stronger the society. Now, hear this, because we're talking about the world influencing us. World philosophy, embraced by our self-centered flesh nature. And you, every one of us is struggling with this flesh, okay? Wants its way, wants its way now, stomps its feet, manipulates to get its way, promoted by the devil, is destroying what God loves and created. Now, what has happened? Now, we've gone through this verse several times in the last few weeks, so it's going to be very familiar with you. Let's go through it again. We inculcate, teach by repetition. So, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, the Spirit, the Spirit of the living God expressly says, this will happen heads up. That in the latter times, as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, some who are in the faith will depart from the faith, giving heed, at least they look like they're in the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Take a hard stop in that verse. Because when you eliminate God from a culture, and this is a repeat from several times in the last few weeks, the void... The vacuum will be filled, and the gods of this world have come pouring in to the United States of America and have changed the view of humanity in this country. Deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons telling you it's okay to be just like the world. No, it isn't. What do they do? It's typical demon stuff. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared. 
no longer affected by the word of God with a hot iron, cauterized, burned. And there goes the church in America, seared, cauterized, burned. World philosophy. The gods of this world are here. With them are deceiving spirits that call evil good and good evil. These gods, make no mistake, demand your allegiance. If you do not walk lockstep with the LBGTQRSTUV agenda, then you will be ostracized by this culture. Just ask any athlete that is pressurized to wear a uniform, declaring their allegiance to that lifestyle. These gods demand you cave to their philosophies, and I would say to you, do not do it, men and women of God, men and women of honor, men and women with the Holy Spirit rod of iron up your spine that allows you to stand for truth. Don't do it. Colossians 2.8 says this, see to it, pay attention to this, see to it that no one, now who's no one? No one with a counter worldview to what God says. No one, let no one that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive, deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. What is philosophy? The next slide will show you. Phileo is love. Sophia is wisdom. Put them together is philosophy, the love of wisdom. And it really is a love of worldly wisdom. There is a godly wisdom, but the world does not embrace that. It's a love of worldly wisdom in most part. But there is a philosophy that is godly wisdom. It is associated with his word and what he says to us. Philosophy. Folks, God created the family. God created us male and female. Don't buy into the indoctrination, the gaslighting, the over and over telling you that there's umpteen different genders, that your kid can identify as a cat or a rat or whatever else. Don't buy into that. It is a lie. Satan hates what God loves. There is a systematic movement by the kingdom of darkness to dismantle the family. And divorce is part of this plan. Everyone's doing it. Starting new, that's going to make things better. Correcting are my past mistakes. We just fell out of love. So why not just end the thing now? 67% of the second marriages fail and 73% of the third. Folks, you have a chance. I don't care if you're married 15 times. If you say, I'm going to follow the Jesus way, you have a large, huge chance in being successful in your marriage. Follow his way. Real Christianity, following the Messiah, really, really, really makes a difference. God established marriage. One man, one woman for life. The two become one flesh. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. We are the bridegroom. Our bride is away. I am committing faithfulness to him. He, was, he is faithful to me. He will come back and to receive me unto himself that where he is, there I will also be. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Please, please don't break the picture. Fight for your marriage. I want to say this. I want to end this like this. Fight for your marriage. Do whatever you can to make the marriage work. Do your part. Do not be quick to say no mas. No more. No more. Don't be too quick. Allow the world to see that Christ really does make a difference in your life. Now, what I am not saying... I am not saying no divorce ever. There are biblical reasons. There are situations that are so egregiously abusive that, in my opinion, that God gives, I don't, I'm not saying an open door, separate from those things, and if you have to progress, then you progress. I would encourage you, work on it, work on it, work on it, struggle with it, struggle with it, struggle with it, but I understand those extreme abusive situations. And I do not believe it is the heart of God for a woman to be battered year after year after year after year, or a man, because it can go both ways in this culture, like I said. 
And I don't want to go beyond what is written. So, Lord, please forgive me if I'm saying something that isn't of you. Please. And I'm saying, so I am saying, fight for your marriage. It is a witness to the world that you have been with Jesus. Proceed slowly and exhaust all options before proceeding with divorce. Now, I want to leave you with two pictures. Please, calling all believers to follow the Jesus way. Number one, Jesus said, come and follow me. Come and follow me. That's what you do when you say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. You are committing to follow him. This is, these are not just words that you use to get a ticket to get into heaven. These are words that you use and say, no, I, my loyalty is changed from the kingdom of darkness doing it that way to the kingdom of light living my life this way. That's the difference. Come, follow me. And then the next picture, I love this too. Following Jesus, following Jesus, the Jesus way. Folks, if you do this, if you do this, look at marriage is hard. I don't care. In the best of situations, you're bringing two sinning people together that have their own will and their own ways. But if you submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do it his way, then you have the greatest opportunity for your marriage, not just to, not just to survive the thing. That's not what you want. You want to thrive in your marriage. You want to be bound together with your spouse, super glued together, enjoying life together, and enjoying one another. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her by the washing of the water with the word. And wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. If we do these things, you can have a marriage that will thrive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Or this is a hard teaching on divorce. It is so difficult, Lord. It is difficult. I, I, I know it is. I've met with so many people that have struggled with so many things over these years. And Lord, some of them have survived and thrived, and some of them unfortunately didn't. Some of them for justifiable reasons. Some of them for not justifiable reasons. Lord, thank you that you've helped us to know that divorce is not the unforgivable sin, that we can repent, we can turn our eyes to you, and we can move forward. I pray today that you'll work in the hearts of each one of us, and not just on this subject of divorce, Lord, it's so hard and so difficult, but just on the subject of life, that we would truly commit ourselves to following you, to living our lives the Jesus way, not freelancing, doing what I feel like doing and adding a little bit of Jesus. That's the ticket to misery. But take the ticket to success and say, Lord Jesus, I will do things your way no matter what. You are the way, the truth, and the life. I will follow you, my King. In Jesus' name, amen.